0: Back in April 2000, Ricky and Tony Sexton, husband and wife, were taken hostage inside their Wraithville, Virginia home by a fugitive couple on a crime spree. Tony had gone out to take her poodle outside to water it, and, um, and while she was out there, this car comes careening into their driveway. It was Dennis Lewis and Angela Tanner. He was 37, she's 20 at this time they jumped out of the car with pistols in their hands and yelled at her said get into the house right now so they took her in the house ricky and tony were held captive there inside the home though this hostage experience was turned into an opportunity to demonstrate christian love the sextons listened to their captors As they shared their troubles, they fed them, they showed them gospel videos, they read to them from the Bible, and they prayed and cried with them. Later on, as the the police came, negotiators, they all surrounded the house, and Ricky Sexton, the owner of the house, refused to be for his own release because Dennis and and, um, Angela said, you know what, the only way this is going to end is if we kill ourselves. He said, "No, I'm not going to allow that to happen. I'm staying here with you." Before surrendering to the police, Angela Tanner, she left 135 dollars in a note for the Sextons, which read like this: "Thank you for your hospitality. We really appreciate it. I hope he gets better referring to Dennis. Wish all luck and love. Please accept this. It is really all that we have to offer. Love, Angela and Dennis What a time that was I mean it's just a, a huge reminder That we never forget The disarming power of Christian love And that's what we're going to talk about Today we're gonna, I'm just going to follow up With what PT started last week and, um, and this is the end of chapter 5 If you grab your Bibles we're gonna, This is the last of the You have heard it said And then next week we'll start into chapter 6. So Matthew chapter 5, the last paragraph there, starting in verse 43. It says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. So you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun to shine, to rise on the evil and on the good, and rain sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So we're going to look at this, tear this apart, and it ends up being three points, uh, as any good uh, preacher would have. But number one is the history, what is, what is he talking about in these verses? I, you've heard it said, you heard that it was said, is the f- opening line there. And I've always been interested, you know, what, this is interesting because he said that how many times throughout this these, these series, you have heard that it was said. It's interesting because he didn't say, you know, or you understand, or it is written. He didn't say any of that. He said, you've heard that it was said. So that means to me, as I, as I examine the scriptures, that this is really not a scriptural principle that Jesus endorsed, to love your uh, neighbors but hate your enemies. It's been made up by man. So he says, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Has anyone... Ever read that in the Bible? I've read through the Bible a few times. And uh, I've never heard that scripture referenced in the Bible. I've never seen those words that would indicate that we need to hate our enemies. To the contrary. So, where did this thought come from? Where did they get this idea? And so I was reading through a bunch of commentaries this week to try to get in a, a glimpse of where this actually started. And there is no definite time period. No one could ever pinpoint a time that this started. But a couple different schools of thought were that the leaders of the Jewish nation had taken a view that to love your neighbor meant to love your fellow Jew or those right in the same ethnicity or background as you. It could have begun to cause these thoughts in the, in the, in the minds of the Jewish people back even at the the time of uh, uh, Jericho. When the children of Israel went across the Jordan River, the nations that they were to defeat were nations that did not honor God, did not, not follow His laws, did not love the Lord. And so they began to look at them as their enemies, to destroy them. That was their enemy nation. Well, then we look at Psalm 139, verses 21 and 22. It's on the screen. It says, I'm reading this from the King James Version. I like the way it reads. It said, Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Psalm 139 is probably my all-time favorite psalm. And I use it a lot when I'm visiting people who are facing surgery or uh, facing trials and tribulations of some type, I go to the hospital. They're uh, in the hospital for the sickness or so. I, I use those verses a lot, but I always skip those verses because they didn't make sense to me. Why? Why would these verses be in the middle of, of this explaining who we are? You know that God, He knows us from the beginning to the end. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, and then all of a sudden, I hate you comes up. I hate my enemies. So I, I, I would always skip those. And I said, why is that? So I, I started digging in this week about that, and, and I'm beginning to understand that David was not saying that he hated the people, but he hated their ways. That was clarified in, in some of the commentaries. It says that the word hate here, as applied to them, those, those enemies, must be understood in the sense that he, is, he disapproved of their conduct that he did not desire to be associated with them, that he wished to avoid their society and to find his friends among among men of of a different character. Another commentator said that it is not that hatred which is followed by violence or ill will, it is that which is accompanied with grief, pain of heart, pity, and sorrow. So the Savior looked on people in Mark 3, 5, it says, and, and when he had looked around them, about on them, with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their heart. He was grieved. So it has that same connotation. It's not the hatred of the people themselves, but it's their way of life and the way they treated people. Okay? We see the same hatred that, that they were purporting then. back then. We see this even true today. In, um, in the 2008 Mumbai, India attacks, there were some attacks that went on there. There were a series of attacks that took place in November that year when 10 members of the Lashkar el tabi uh, an Islamic militant organization based in uh, Pakistan, carried out a series of 12 coordinated shootings and bombings, attacking, uh, attacks lasting four days across Mumbai. The attacks which drew widespread global condemnation beginning on Wednesday the 26th of November and lasted until Saturday the 29th in 2008, killing 164 people and wounding 308. There was a Jewish rabbi, his name was Botich, a fiery, opinionated, orthodox Jewish rabbi who frequently made his rounds on the cable networks. He wrote an article in response to these attacks in Mumbai, India. In that article, Botich argues that people of goodwill ought to hate. He meant passionately and actively hate people who commit acts like those in Mumbai. Here's how he deals with Jesus' command to love our enemies. He says, As for my Christian brothers, who regularly quote to me Jesus' famous saying, love your enemies, my response is that our enemies and God's enemies are different parties altogether. Jesus meant to love those who steal my girlfriend or cut me off on the road or swindle me out of a business deal. But, the, but to love those who indiscriminately murder God's children is an abomination against all that is sacred. Is there a man who is human whose heart is not filled with moral revulsion against terrorists who target a rabbi who feeds the hungry? Would God or Jesus ask me to extend even one morsel of my limited capacity for compassion to fiends that rather than saving every last particle of the, of that for their own victims instead? God, could God really be so unreasonable? Could Jesus be so cruel as to to ask me to love baby killers? And would would such a God be moral if he did? Could I pray to a God who loves terrorists? Could I find comfort in him knowing that he offers to them comfort as well? No. Such a God would be my enemy, he says. He would abide in Hades rather than in heaven, and I would rather be damned before I would worship him. I will accept an eternity in purgatory rather than a moment of celestial bliss shared with these beasts. This was a Jewish rabbi that, that said all this. They're pretty harsh words, aren't they? His feelings toward, toward these terrorists. But this really lines up with what we're reading in today's scripture, how that they, they, they loved their neighbors but hated their enemies. This is, what, this is what's revealed right here in this, in this article. But we're going to see how Jesus would handle this situation and others like that in a godly way. And we'll come back to that in just a few minutes. But I don't know about you, but if if I were Ricky and Tony and Dennis and Angela came in busting into my house, what would your first response be? Where is my gun? Or where can I escape? How can I escape out of the situation? That's what we're taught. As a missionary, I was trained that way. They They came in and and we were in Thailand, and they came, and they, they, a guy from the special, special forces came and taught us a class on dealing with terrorists that come in. Because missionaries are an easy target, because they live out in the jungles, and, and they're an easy target. So they taught us what to do, how to try to escape, how to disarm people, and things. So that would have been my first response. But what Ricky and Tony did, it doesn't make sense, it's not logical. Those hostage takers deserve to be shot for all the crimes that they'd done, right? They should have been shot. Well, they didn't live like that. I want to go back to Psalm 139 again. It's on the screen and it, where it says, Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? E- and am not I grieved with those who rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. But then he goes on those next two verses and helps bring it into focus when he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So David is saying, he said, I don't want to hate these people. I want to hate their ways and what they're doing. We see this over and over in the book of Psalms where David says, Free me from my enemies. Destroy them. Do away with them. He's talking about doing away with the way of wickedness. Save the people. He's asking God to reveal when he's crossed that line of hating the way of the sinner to actually hating the person. He's saying, see if there's any unclean way in me. Lord, I don't want to live like that. I don't want to live hating people but I do despise, I loathe what they do. You remember that last week, PT challenged us to be able to give up our rights to four different things. You remember what they were? There were four different aspects of life that, in order to serve God with a pure heart. It was the right to dignity, the right to comfort, the right to freedom, and the right to possessions. Well, I'd like to add one more this week. I want to add that today it's our right to hate our enemy. We think we have a right to do that. Let's look at number two is the truth. What is the truth that Jesus is trying to get us? He's trying to get us to dig deeper into who he is and his life, down to the very core of who we are. And this will truly reveal our commitment level to him. And to a higher calling that he has on our lives. It's going to reveal our hearts. This area of loving our enemies. We see that in verse 44 where Jesus is going against all that's been taught in the past. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So, it's pretty simple. I tell you to love them, pray for them. But... Why should we do this? What's, why is it so important? It goes on in verse 45 so that we can be living the life that God created us to live. He says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. This is how a son should act. This is, God is saying, this is how my children should act. He's not talking about our salvation. He's talking about the pattern of living that mirrors his life. And that's what he's talking about, that we live our life to be a mirror image of who he is. So let's look, look back at, at Rabbi Botich's um, article, and there was three things in there that I think we'll see that were wrong thinking in his mind. Number one is that he was wrong in limiting Jesus' command to minor personal offenses. Jesus says, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who persecute you. Persecution isn't just stealing my girlfriend or cutting me off on the road, right? For Christians back then, it was literally them being killed or, or their families being killed. And usually in often brutal ways. Those are the enemies Jesus is telling them to love. Not someone who cuts you off in traffic. Isn't when you when you when you think about what Botich was saying there. He's saying exactly what Jesus is calling us to reject. He's saying that. You've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor but hate your enemy. That's what he was living. But Jesus goes on and says, but I say to you. And Jesus exemplified this throughout his whole life while he was here on earth. He exemplified, he was a big example. Even to the point when he was on the cross and they were he was hanging on the cross. What did he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He loved them still, the ones that put the nails in his hands and hung him there. The second thing about this article is that loving our enemies does not mean that we shouldn't work for hope or pray against injustice. On the contrary, we should work and pray and hope for, for justice, even human justice. And that's why, that's why we began RHM, because we see what's going on around the world. And so we started RHM to stand up for people who were being um, abused and and killed for things that are going on. Of course, the thing, the hope that I want us to remember is that there is coming a day when all this will end. God's going to return. Everything will be put back in right order. But until that day comes... Romans 13, if you read Romans 13, it gives the state the power of the sword, that is that they have the right and authority to execute judgment, and if necessary, by executing those who commit the most heinous crimes. There's, a, there's an important distinction PT brought out last week, a big distinction between uh, enacting justice by an individual, which is vengeful and wrong, versus the courts, and the law enacting justice by the state which is just and right. We learned that last week. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, he said. And it's the responsibility of the law and the court system to exact that punishment, not ours, on those who commit these heinous crimes. Point number three about this article is that that where our verses today come into play the word tells us that God makes the sun shine and causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust he loves people God loves all people and he's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance and and salvation through Christ we know they're not scripture is very clear in that but he makes it available for them so a God who loves everyone tells us to love even those who would be our persecutors. That we should pray for them that, that, will, that they will come to know the Savior, but also that justice will be exacted according to God's plan. And that the criminal would be caught and tried. We need to pray for justice. Now, this is, we, we tend to get ourselves thinking that that those people are really bad because they do these kind of things. Those people are the w- w- much worse than we are, but it's not true. It's only by the grace of God that we are what we are today. If it wasn't for God's grace, where would you be? I could tell stories. We must stop being self-righteous because... How many of us truly deserve God's forgiveness? That we've been good enough that, that we deserve it? Or is it that, that we marvel in his grace that he would save someone like me? Someone who has done a lot of heinous things growing up. Someone who's not followed God, that rebelled against God. We have a tendency to compare ourselves with those that are worse than us, not by those who are living an exemplary Christian life because it makes us look better. I'm better than they are. I'm not so bad. But when we do that, we look pretty good to ourselves. But remembering back over the past months, the messages that we've been sharing through the, through the Sermon on the Mount, we'll see that we really aren't any better than, than those, those sinners because we've all fallen short of the glory of god this is where rabbi botek was was coming up wrong because we're we're no better than them we're no better than these heathens so let's go back to our text and point number three is our response the response to 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 what jesus is challenging us in verse 46 and 47 it says if you love those that love you what reward do you have Do not even tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So so it is easy. Think about it for a second. It is pretty easy to love those that that we get along with, right? That think like we do, that have the same standard of living that we do, that have um, the values like we do. But... We're to love those that think differently, that are different. That's another story. For a rich person to love a poor person is very difficult. It's just vice versa. For a poor person to really respect a rich person because they look at them and say, wow, they've got all this money and they're not sharing it with me. They're selfish. So there's that divide. Well, what about someone from another culture? What about someone from a different religion? What about someone who hates you and would rather kill you than allow you to live as an infidel? How can we love them? He calls us to love them. What does that look like? Watch Nee tells about a, a Chinese Christian who owned a rice paddy. Um, next to the one who owned the next paddy over was a, a communist man. The Christian irrigated his paddy by pumping water out of the canal using one of these. Uh, it looks like a stationary bike, and it pumps the water up out of the canal and dumps it into his paddy field. If you've seen paddy fields, then you understand what that is, because the streams are down here and the paddy fields are up here, and they have to they have tiers and they run down. So he would go up at the top, and then it would run. The water would run down. Well, every t- every day when he got done, he would leave his plant. His rice was growing. The communist man would come and pull the boards out that, that blocked the water from going down, and then all the water would drain into his field. And then he would put the boards back and go home, and his, water, his fields were watered. This went on for a long time. Continued day after day. Finally, the Christian man, he prayed. He said, Lord, if this keeps up, I'm going to lose all my rice, maybe even my field. And I've got a family to feed, he said. What can I do? In answer to his request, the Lord put a thought in his mind. Can you guess what it is? You're probably guessing it. So the next morning, he rose up much earlier in the pre-dawn hours of the darkness and, and started pumping water into the field of his communist neighbor. Then he would replace the boards and pump water into his own field. And in a few weeks, both fields of rice were doing well. But that's not the end of the story. This communist man became a believer because he saw the love of Christ in action. This Christian could have said, This is my enemy, and I hate him. But instead, he served him. It takes more than emotions. It's a choice that the Christian man had to make in order to serve a, a higher, higher purpose, the salvation of this communist man. David Paulison, in his book uh, called Good and Angry, he wrote this. Love for someone who wrongs you does not mean working up feelings of affection, attraction, or attachment. It means a policy of doing tangible good. The Bible says here, to, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For so by, for so, by so doing, you heap burning coals on his head. What are you willing to do in order to, to see the salvation of others despite the situation? Like Ricky and Tony face, you know, God is calling us to a supernatural love. He's calling us to something that, that we cannot do in ourselves. To call, he calls us to love those who we would normally consider unlovable. This is not easy. I've seen some, some pretty heinous things and uh, crimes going activities and stuff over the years, and it just makes my stomach curl. It's gross. But in Romans, let's follow up with Romans, what Paul says. he started quoting these verses. in Romans 12: 19 to 21, it says, "Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, "Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord." To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's getting, to the, that's getting to the heart of it right there. So who is my neighbor then? And what is it going to cost me? What is it going to cost me to love my enemy? Well, sometime it may cost your life. It could cost you your life. But for the most part, for the most of the time, it's going to cost you your humbling yourself and and going to those who are different than you and to seek to honor God by ministering to their needs and sharing the gospel with them. It's probably in your workplace. Think about that in your workplace or at school, your neighbors, How many of us have neighbors that we would rather just wish they would move away? I think we all have them. Yeah, that's right. This is, you know, it's loving people that want you to shut up, that want you to be quiet because you claim the name of Jesus and you're considered intolerant because you don't believe what they believe. Those are our enemies that he's calling us to love people that think different than us. It's not easy. This is an impossible task that God is calling us to, and there's no way that we can do it in our own strength. There's no way. We need His divine power and the Spirit's filling daily in our lives to be able to accomplish this. And that's why Jesus said in that next, that last verse, He says, you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So how is that possible, to be perfect as He is perfect? Well, there's two things I want us to remember. Number one is is that because you are a believer, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ tonight, that He is your Lord, Ephesians 1, 11 to 14, this is your verse. It says, in Him we have. This is something we have already. We've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, what? were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee or the down payment, the security, the security, for our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. That's our position. That's who we are in Christ. We are sealed, delivered. That's our home is in glory. One of these days we'll take possession of it. That's who we are. We are perfect in God's eyes. We've been made righteous, how? Through the blood of Christ. Through the blood of Christ. That we, in our position with God, are holy and, ju- and right. But we have to live on this earth. There's this practical side of living the Christian life. And that's where he's given us the Holy Spirit in order to be able to live out who we already are in Christ. So we already are in glory with him, but yet he gave us the Holy Spirit to be able to live that out in a daily in our daily lives on here on earth. So in John 14, verses 15 to 17, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because, they, because it, it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is what we have as believers. We live in a great age where the Holy Spirit is now indwelling every person who names the name of Christ as their Savior. So what is the Spirit's responsibility? Further down in that chapter, in verse 26, it says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. What does that say? That's saying that the important things that we, we, have, we have read in this book that we have listened to in preaching and we sing songs and things, things that we've learned in memorizing scripture, he's going to bring these things back to our memory that we can say, you know what? God says, I don't need to fear. I can cast out fear in my life. That perfect love, that perfect love, I can cast out my fears. I don't have to live that way. That perfect love casts out fear. So, this is what he's saying is that the Holy Spirit is here to, live, to give us the strength and the power to live our daily life. Even though we are positioned already in glory, our everyday life, we need that Spirit's enabling. So apart from the Spirit's living and working in our hearts, we will not be able to love our enemies. We'll not be able to do it. It's impossible. And this is the neat thing, that Jesus never asked us to do anything that he hadn't already done himself. He is our example, our motivation, and will provide all that we need to follow his commands. If this sounds impossible, it is. It is impossible apart from his spirits working in our lives. So how does that work? In Galatians 6, 9, it says, Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So in order to do that, what is, what is the steps that we need to take? It's very simple. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, it says, to looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This part here, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted he is our example he is our he's what we need to be focused on is what he went through for us we can get strength from that so in these last couple minutes here as we're talking tonight and while I'm talking you're listening today is did someone come to your mind as we were thinking about that enemy who came to your mind that you're, you're struggling with right now? Do you see them as an enemy? Do you see them and, and you despise them? When, when they come around, you sort of tend to walk the other way because you don't want anything to do with them. After hearing what Jesus said about that, about loving them, how do you think you need to respond to that message from God? What changes need to be made in your attitude and actions toward them? We all have those people in our heads that are going through your minds right now. I hope it's not the person sitting next to you. That was a joke. (laughs) All right. So how do we start? What does that look like? We start by praying for them. Start by praying for them. And saying, God, you know what? I'm struggling loving this person. I would rather they die than to talk to them. Begin praying for them and then letting God say, take you step by step in breaking down those barriers and beginning to love them. And that's what He asked us to do. I had a, a boss that I worked with and I worked for in, um in Ohio, in Michigan. He, he moved, and then I, he asked me to come down to his new place. When it was just him and I in a situation, there was nobody else around. He, would, he treated me like a friend. I came over. I helped him clean up after his basement flooded. Um, he had some painting that needed to be done. I came over and helped him. But in a situation where he was among his peers or his superiors, He wouldn't even say hi to me he wouldn't even say hi I thought man after all I've done for you why why are you treating me like this and and I found myself becoming bitter toward him and I had to pray that guy I said you know what I don't like feeling like this this is the guy that's hired me he's paying my wages and and making sure I have a good job but yet he's treating me like this I don't like it i had to begin praying for him and allowing god to change my heart and that's what he's asking each of us to do we all have somebody in our life that we despise or we're going to have somebody in our life that's going to threaten to cut our head off or is going to shoot us if we don't denounce christ how can we love them how can we see how can they see christ in us that's what he's trying to get across here about loving our enemies He says, love them and pray for those who persecute you. Let's pray.